Our topic this week is from uh, in our study of the book of Genesis. Uh, we'll be looking from Genesis chapter 2 and through other portions of the scriptures uh, regarding God's Shabbat. Now we've looked at God's Shabbat uh, two other times. And so this will be a third time we'll be focusing on the Shabbat in, God, in prophecy, God's sign and seal. So Genesis 2 verse 2. On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So we looked a whole week on, on the Shabbat, the seventh day, and looked at it throughout scriptures from Genesis on through Revelation, and even into the new heavens and new earth where we'll be keeping the Shabbat and various people have kept Shabbat all down through the ages and that it was given to Adam and Eve, the parents of mankind, thus it is for all of humanity and it was given before sin began and it'll be continuing after sin so it is eternal in its nature, never to be changed, never to be uh, obliterated or, or absolved. It is God's Shabbat, the seventh day that he created and that he himself rested in and that he gave us as a gift as a blessing to us. And then uh, we looked at another text out of Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13. Call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable. And so we spent a whole week looking at how to make the Sabbath a delight, how to delight in God's Shabbat, how to enjoy it, how it's a blessing to us, that it's not a restriction, that it's not something we shouldn't want, it should be something that we desire, that we are thankful for, that we appreciate, and that we enjoy with the Lord and, and with others in all the various different ways that the Sabbath is a blessing to us, that God's gift to us, and all the various different things that we can do on the Shabbat, very activities and, and a time to rest and a time to refresh and a time to grow in the Lord and a time to be a blessing and minister to other people. And so the, the Sabbath can be a time of not doing anything. It can be a time, a time of doing lots of things. And so God's Sabbath is a, is a tremendous blessing to us. No good thing will he withhold to them that walk uprightly. And it's a good thing. Uh, Paul said the, the commandments are good and holy and just, and so God has given it to us as a good gift. He has not withheld it from us. It is good for us. And so again, those were the two, a little review of the past two, and if you missed those, you can see those on shalomadventure.com. Uh, and tonight we're going to focus on the Sabbath in prophecy, in last day events. Just as it was there at the very beginning, one of the two covenants that God gave to humanity and thus, at the end of time, it's going to be an attack of the devil on the Shabbat and the other covenant, which we'll get into uh, various different uh, sermons. But uh, Satan hates this commandment, and it's been a special target of his attacks down through the ages. And we'll see how uh, prophecy describes uh, the Sabbath in relation to that. So starting in, there in Genesis chapter 4, just a couple chapters from creation, Cain brought an offering to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock. The Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Cain was very angry. And the Lord set a mark on Cain. So a mark was placed upon Cain, a mark meaning identification, identifying Cain as opposed to other people. And so in the, in the Bible, talks about the mark of the beast, and we'll get to that in a little bit. And a lot of people, even people who have never read the Bible, have heard the term mark of the beast, and, uh, and wonder what that is, or there's people who think they know what it is, or there's people who have no idea what it is. Well, the Bible is very clear what the mark of the beast is, and we've done a whole sermon on that and other series, uh, but we're not going to look at that, but we're going to look a little bit at that, and in contrast, more importantly, of the mark of God. So here we're seeing a mark on Cain, and maybe that's where we get the term a marked man. Right? And so he was marked, Cain was marked, and the reason he was marked was for his disobedience. Cain had brought an offering to the Lord, so Cain was not an atheist, he was not an agnostic, he was not ignoring God, he was religious, he was in the right place, bringing an offering to the right God, 
but a wrong offering, not the offering that the Lord required. And the Lord accepted Abel's offering, but he did not accept Cain's offering. And that is to where we were right in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 4, and that's going to be very symbolic for the last days. The mark of the beast, as we'll see, uh, is not a, about uh, those who deny God or who resist God openly or agnostic or atheist uh, or again some other form, but coming to the right God, but in the wrong way. So we'll look a little bit more at that. But here, Cain sets that premise there for us uh, that, that, uh, right from the beginning. In Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, the Lord said, Go through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done. And he said to others, Go through the city and kill old and young, maidens and little children, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So here in this text, it's talking about a mark, but not a mark of disobedience, but this is a mark of obedience. This is God's mark. And so the devil has a mark, the mark of the beast, but God also has a mark because a mark is identification. Right? If you took a, a marker right, and you marked a box and said John's stuff or whatever, Bob's stuff in this box, right? it's, you're identifying that box belonging to that person. Right? So it's a mark, it's an identification of who they belong to. And so, uh, Cain in disobedience, but here, this group, in obedience, because they are sighing and crying for the abominations done in the land. And he says then, there's going to be this persecution that takes place, and there'll be this killing off, and, and it will begin at God's sanctuary. So the separating of the wheat and the tares, the judgment day, will begin among the professed believers in God. So among the sanctuary, those who are there in the sanctuary, God's judgment begins. And even among the sanctuary are those who have the mark of God and those who do not have the mark of God. So we want to be among those who have the mark of God. And one of the identifications of those who have the mark of God, who will have God's protection against the final judgment, doesn't mean we won't die in the flesh, doesn't mean we won't be killed as martyrs, but eternally protected under God's salvation, they will, one of the identifications is that they sigh and cry over the abominations that are done in the land. Now, sighing and crying is different than grumbling and complaining. And there's a lot of grumblers and complainers out there, and they will not have this seal of God or the mark of God, right? Uh, this, they're sighing and crying, and there's, again, there's a distinct difference between grumblers and complainers and sires and criers. The sires and criers, so another aspect of that, another way to look at that, we'll go to the Psalms, Psalm 119, verse 136, and see what David says. He says, rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. That's a sighing and crying, right? Rivers of water. He's crying. He's crying so much. He's sighing so much. It's like rivers of water pouring out his eyes. And why is he crying? Because of the abominations that are done in the land. He's sighing and crying because they are not keeping God's law. Right? And so a disobedience to God's law is an abomination. Right? And so God's people will have that kind of a heart. A heart like God has that sighs and cries, that weeps and prays and intercedes for those that are disobedient. Not condemning and putting down and, and accusing and falsely accusing and trashing and backbiting and ridiculing or correcting harshly but sighing and crying, praying, interceding on their behalf, as Yeshua did to those that were persecuting him. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. As Stephen following him, while he's being stoned, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That's the kind of heart that God will give us. To those who are persecuting us, those who are misusing us, those who are 
mistreating us, those who are lying about us. It's so easy now to get so cynical. It's so easy. It's just so much evil to just see all this. And it's so uh, easy to get so upset over all these uh, groups and organizations and, and political leaders and, and nations doing horrible things to people and people doing horrible things to other people. In the name of God, even. It's absolutely horrendous and sad. And it's so easy to get upset. You don't get a bumper sticker that says blank, blank, you know? <laughs> but God has people who are crying and praying. And it's okay to have a political opinion. It's okay to have uh, opinions on things that are happening in the world. But at the same time, as we see the abominations that are being done, instead of getting angry and bitter, God will give us hearts that move us to pray and intercede and pray for our enemies and love our enemies and intercede on their behalf. Pray for God's mercy. Pray that they repent. Pray that the Holy Spirit comes upon them and gives them the gift of repentance and leads them in the way of righteousness. Praying because men do not keep your law. God will stand up because a time will come when they are not obeying God's law. And God will come and work at that time more mightily than ever before. And God's causing us to be those praying. So we need to have a right attitude in relation to God's law and relation to people disobeying and disregarding his law. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16, it says, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And just a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 1, one of the areas we looked at was the Spirit of God and a whole sermon on the Spirit of God. And again, if you missed that, go to shalomadventure.com and you can watch that and get caught up on the Spirit of God. But one of the things we're seeing here in these two texts is that it, the seal of, of God is the law of God. And a seal is like interchangeable with mark. A seal is again used for identification. It's like mark is used for an identification. A seal, someone's seal, is used as their identification. It is the Holy Spirit that does the sealing. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. So the Holy Spirit does the sealing. The Holy Spirit is not the seal. God's law is the seal as it says there in Isaiah 8, seal the law among my disciples, but it's the Holy Spirit that does the sealing. So we see this example here in this picture, right? So you get this plastic thing here, and I got kind of a, another kind of illustration one there, right? So you got this plastic thing that does the sealing, and then next to it is the actual seal, right? In this example, it's uh, Benjamin Franklin, he's a notary, and he's of the state of Texas, right? And so a seal will have the person's name, It'll have their title, and it'll have the territory that they have a jurisdiction over. So if someone said, right, if someone said, um, you know, here's this document, can you put your seal on it? And they took the piece of plastic, and they put it on it, and say, there, I put my seal on it. Is that what they were talking about? No. This is the sealer, right? They want you to put this, the seal. They want you to put the stamp on it that then will have the, the name and the title and the territory that they're over, right? So that's the seal. So the law is the seal, but it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to obey God's law. We don't have the strength and the ability to keep God's law on our own power. Many people try, and when we try, we're just doing it legalistically, and we're not delighting in God's Sabbath. We're not delighting in God's law. We're grumbling and complaining and condemning everybody else. We're not doing it to our standard. That's not holiness. And again, it's legalism. But true righteousness is having the Holy Spirit fill us and the Holy Spirit empower us to walk in God's laws and to be in obedience to God's laws. And so God's law is his seal, his identification, his mark. In Revelation 7 verse 2 it says, I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God saying, do not harm the earth 
or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So, again, a lot of people have heard of the mark of the beast, but not many people have heard of the mark of God or the seal of God or the sign of God. Again, all interchangeable words. But God has a seal, has an identification just as verily. And so here it talks about this in Revelation, that they will come with God's seal and they will seal it on the foreheads. And the word on or in are interchangeable, right? And um, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I command you this day shall be on your hearts. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Right? That's with the Shema and the Via Hafta, right, that we just prayed and sang. Right? And so uh, here in Deuteronomy 6, he's saying these commandments, so God's laws, these commandments that I give you this day, and what are the commandments that he's referring to there? Deuteronomy chapter 6. What's the commandments? What's in Deuteronomy chapter 5? Do you know Deuteronomy chapter 5? The Ten Commandments. So Deuteronomy 5 is the Ten Commandments. And then in Deuteronomy 6, he says, These commandments. He's referring to Deuteronomy 5. He's talking about the Ten Commandments that he just did. Not so much the, the command to, to, to write them on the doorposts, or, but the command, the Ten Commandments, these commandments I shall, shall be on your hearts. Does that mean you're going to have open heart surgery and put a tattoo on your heart? Is that what he's referring to here? Are you talking literally? No. And so same with the on your symbols on your hands. Does that mean a tattoo on your hands? Does that mean a box like uh, the, 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 the tefillin? Uh, a box on our forehead, a box on our arm? No. He's talking about uh, in the heart, that we love the law. Oh, how I love your law is my meditation all day long. Right? It says, it says in the Psalms. Right? It's a, that we have a love for God's law and that it would be in our minds that we choose to obey them. And then with our hands, whatsoever your hand findeth to do, do with all your might. Right? So the hand representing our actions, what we do. Right? And so it's doing the law, it's choosing to do the law, it's loving the law. Actually, in reverse order, right? It's choosing, and then God gives us a love for the law, and then God gives us the power to obey the law, and to act it out, and to do God's biddings. And so that's the this seal of God written in our hearts and in our minds and in our foreheads. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, it says similarly, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Right? So, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And in this text, what's the identification? In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, what is the identification that we are his people? that we have his law written in our minds and on our hearts, right? And who is it that puts it in our minds and in our hearts? God does, right? I will put, right? And so God places, more than just reading it and thinking about it, it's God miraculously through the Holy Spirit doing that sealing, the Holy Spirit placing it on our hearts, placing it in our minds. Right? And so if we come to a realization that we really don't love God's law. Maybe at one time we did, but now we don't. Maybe still obedient to it, maybe still doing it, but no longer with that love, no longer with that passion. Then we just confess that. Lord, I've lost my first love. Lost, I've lost my, Lord, I've lost my zeal for you. Lord, I've just become routine. I've gotten into the rut of religiosity in doing these things. Lord, remove that from me and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me a love for your law. And we're struggling with making a choice to follow God's law or not. Maybe there's a lot of outside pressures that we're receiving. Lord, I choose. Give me the power. Write your laws into my mind and give me the ability to choose. The power to follow through with that choice and to walk in obedience to you. And God will place his laws in our minds, in our hearts, and work them through us. So just like uh, we talked a little bit about a seal, so a seal representing a name, a title, and a territory. 
We have, a, for example, a presidential seal, right? So a presidential seal, for example, might say uh, the name, right, Donald J. J. Trump, uh, the title, president, and the territory, the United States, right? So the presidential seal would have those things on it, right? And he would sign his name uh, under the, the document or on the, on the law. And so, similarly, God's seal also will have his name, his title, and his territory, right? So, like that example again, Benjamin Franklin, the notary, the state. So, which commandment has God's name, the Lord your God, has his title, has his territory, the heavens and the earth? Which one of the commandments has that? There's only one, right? Which one is that? Not one. One doesn't say his territory. One says, you shall have no other gods before me, right? Not all of them. You shall not steal. It doesn't have a name. It doesn't have a territory. It doesn't have a title. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. Who says I shouldn't kill? Who says I shouldn't commit adultery? Who says I shouldn't steal? Who says I shouldn't covet? Who says I should honor my father and mother? doesn't say it in any of those. There's only one commandment that has God's name, his title, and his territory. The Sabbath commandment. The fourth commandment. That's right. And here it is. Oh, I thought I had it in there. Well, I lost it somewhere. All right. Yeah, the Sabbath commandment uh, in Exodus chapter 20, as well as in Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. For he has created all things, and on the seventh day he rests. Six days he labored and did all his work, his creator. And the seventh day he rested from all his work. So he created the heavens and the earth, on the seventh day as the creator and his title, the Lord your God. So it's the Sabbath commandment out of all the commandments that identify who has the authority to make those commandments. And to hold, that's right, it is the one that identifies him as the one who has that authority. It is the only one that identifies him fully as having the authority because he reigns over everywhere, thus he reigns over everyone, and because he is the creator of all things, Thus, he has the power to do all things. He's from the beginning and to the end. He is all things and over all things. Thus, he is the one that has the right and the authority to do those things. In Revelation 13 and 14, it uses the word worship seven times. So here in Revelation 13, it says, They worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast... All who dwell on the earth will worship him. He causes all to worship the first beast. He was granted power and causes as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So five times here in chapter 13 about the beast, worshiping the beast. The last day issue will have to do with worship. It's not about politics. It's not about, although it says he causes all and he grants power, so no doubt there will be political influences that are able to give power and to cause or to force and even to kill those who do not worship the beast. But the, but the issue primarily is worship. Not finances, although it will have the power. Again, these powers, these dictators, these tyrants will use power and these, these uh, corporations will use global power and finances to, so that you can't buy or sell. But the issue comes down to worship, who we worship. So it's not about agnostics and atheists. It's like Cain again, coming to worship God, bringing an offering to the Lord God, but worshiping in the wrong way and for the wrong motives and more wrong reasons. But it has to do with worship. The devil wants to be worshipped. Right? One of the temptations to Yeshua was, bow down and worship me and I will give you all these things. Right? He's desiring to be worshipped. He wants to be like God. And that's going to be the final test on who and how we worship. So there's these five times in chapter 13, and then we look into chapter 14, and it continues... In verse 6 and 7, And I saw another angel having the everlasting gospel 
to preach, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. So there's this everlasting gospel. So again, we have the contrast. So there's an everlasting gospel. So if it's an everlasting good news, it's an everlasting salvation, and it's not just a one-third of verse history gospel, it's not just a 25% of the Bible gospel, but it's an eternal gospel. Right? I was driving down the road uh, not too long ago, and I, I saw a church, in it, and it said it was a New Testament church of whatever. I thought, boy, they only got 25% of the Bible. <laughs> you know, we're going to go there. Right? Who wants to go just for 25%, right? You know, uh, so it's, just a, it's the everlasting gospel. I mean, it's the gospel that goes back to the very beginning of time. It's the same gospel that was given to Adam and Eve, and we'll look at that in another chapter or two, maybe another few weeks, uh, as we're going through Genesis. The everlasting gospel that goes even before that because Yeshua is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. So even before Adam and Eve sinned, God foreseeing what they were going to do, not that God wanted that, not that God planned that, not that it was God's will, but God foreseeing what they were going to do, he had already pre-planned for the Messiah to die as the Lamb slain on our behalf. An everlasting gospel that is applied down through the ages. The same gospel that saved Adam and Eve is the same gospel that Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. The same gospel that saved Moses. The same gospel that saved David. The same gospel that down through the ages helped Hezekiah. The same gospel down through the ages all throughout the scriptures that has helped everyone. An everlasting gospel. One gospel for all people in all nations through the Messiah who grants us forgiveness, and salvation because of his death in our behalf. The gospel of good news, that we are forgiven, and more than just forgiven, that he fills us with the Holy Spirit to empower us and transform us and change us back into his image. So we'll have the message, so one of the identifications is the sighing and crying of God's people that are worshiping him at the last days, sighing and crying for the abominations that are done because they're breaking God's law, and they will be preaching the everlasting gospel, a gospel that spans all through history. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. What is the title that we would give to God describing him, him as the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water? What, what identification would that be? What title would that be? As creator, that's right. He's got lots of titles, right? He's our redeemer, he's our provider, he's our savior, right? Lots of different titles, lots of different things that God does, right? He has lots of different roles. But here, in this text, right in the midst where he's talking about the mark of the beast and who to worship, it's referencing the gospel and as creator. So as savior and as creator, is the two aspects that he's bringing out here that are crucially important in how we worship the Lord. And worshiping correctly as both creator and savior. And between those two things, or any of all the titles, which one of the titles or roles do you think is maybe the most important one that God has? Anything more important? Him as our redeemer, or our deliverer, or our provider, or our savior, or our creator? What would be what do you think, in your opinion, is most important? If there was to be one, obviously all important, what do you think would be most important? Our Father. Father is another important title, right? What do you think? Savior. Savior. Savior is important. Redeemer, right? Okay. So many things. But do you need a Savior if you've never been created? Right? If he didn't create us, there's no need of a Savior. He wouldn't have had to die for someone he didn't create, right? So in some sense, the creator had to be first, right? If he didn't create, if he wasn't creator, but he was just savior, then it's really not too much of a help, right? So he needed to be creator first and foremost. And if Adam and Eve never sinned, then would he have needed to be a savior? No. no. Right. But he still needed to be a creator, right? So in some ways, being a creator is paramount to everything else. Everything else comes in his train that he is our eternal father, that he is the birth one, he is the one that, that brings us forth, right? He's the one 
who initiates all things, right? And so he is the creator, that's important, but because we're fallen, we need him as a, the gospel giver too. We need him as a savior as well. But if we forget him as creator, then we're missing a crucial part of who he is and who he is to be worshipped. Now, where does this phrase, where else is this phrase, almost word for word, made the heaven and the earth and the sea, where else is that in the Bible? What's that? The fourth commandment. And I do have it. Here it is. Ta-da! <laughs> it showed up. It just moved, right? So here it is. Exodus 20, verse 11, which is just a portion of the fourth commandment. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Something like about nine words in a complete phrase that is taken right from the heart of the commandments, right from the fourth commandment, and quoted in Revelation. And Revelation is quoting about 80 to 90% of Revelation is quotes and analogies from the first part of the Bible. But very few times, if ever, or anywhere where a quote of the Bible is requoted, you have like nine words in a row. You might have a short phrase, three words in a row, Spirit of God, you know, something like that, um, uh, Son of God, or various different things, phrases. But nine or so words? That's a lot. And so when he's saying here in Revelation, John's writing that and sending it to the people, biblical literate people, having portions memorized, no doubt the Ten Commandments memorized, and they hear him saying, worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea, boom, automatically pops into their mind, worship him as the creator. And what sign did God give us? What event did God give us to remember him as creator? The Sabbath, right. And what holiday, 52 holidays a year, what holiday did he give us to remind us that he is the creator? The Sabbath. Right? He's given us the Passover to remind us he's a deliverer and, and savior and other different things, right? But uh, the Sabbath he gave us as a reminder that he is the creator. And so here it's saying to worship him as the creator and proclaim the everlasting gospel. Two crucial things. So it's putting the Sabbath right into the heart of this section where it's talking about don't worship the beast. They're going to try and force you to worship the beast. They're going to try and cause you to worship the beast. They're going to tell you you can't buy a cell if you don't worship the beast. They're going to give power to those to try and get you to not worship, to wor to worship the beast. They're going to even threaten to kill you if you don't worship the beast. Remember God as the creator and worship him. And honor him as the creator remembering the Sabbath day and the everlasting gospel. And then right after these verses in Revelation 14, 6 and 7, it says, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now from those other texts when we were looking at the seal of God or the mark of God or the sign of God, where was it saying that would be? Where would God write his laws or seal his laws? Where? Heart and mind and hand, right? And here, where is the mark of the beast? Same place. Same place. Mind, head, right? Uh, forehead or hand. Now with the seal of God, it's and. It has to be in all those places. We have to love his law. We have to choose to obey his law and by his power, do his law. But for the mark of the beast, it's either or. Right? So we can know better. We can know which is God's truth. We can know which is the right way. But because of pressures yield to those pressures, put our boss or our job or our spouse or opinion, opinion of others or fear and do the wrong thing and disobey God. So it's either or. Either way, we receive the mark of the beast. And so we have the... the... Uh, don't worship the beast, the seal of God, and worship him as the 
proclaim the everlasting gospel and as the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea and then the beast power, the worshiping the beast in the hand and the forehead. So right in the midst, right in the middle of that, you have that contrast, kind of sandwiched between the two. And so God wants us to see that because the seal of God is in direct contrast to the mark of the beast. And then right after these words in Revelation 14, it says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. So two aspects, just like we just read in Revelation 14, where it said uh, the everlasting gospel and worshiping him who made the heavens and earth and sea. It's saying basically the same thing, just with different words. Right, the everlasting gospel, representing faith in Yeshua, the uh, worshiping him who made the heaven and earth and sea, the creator, the Sabbath commandment, and interchangeable with keeping the commandments of God. Because if you've kept one, if you've broken one, you've broken them all, right? Because they fit together as one package. That's why you didn't have to say in each one of the commandments that he is the Lord God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Right? You only had to say it in one, and it applied to all ten. Right? It was the seal on the whole document. They're all one package together. And so we have this here in Revelation where it talks about the beast power and its mark, and then the seal of God, and the, those who keep, or rather, the, and then it goes into the, those who keep the commandments of God and have the everlasting gospel, then the mark of the beast, and then those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Yeshua. And so kind of sandwiched in between. So we have this beast sandwich. And so here's a, a beast sandwich, right? So we have in Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7, the everlasting gospel and his law, right, to worship him who created the heavens and earth and sea, the Sabbath commandment, and the mark of the beast, right, those who receive the mark in their hand or their forehead. And then in Revelation 12, we have the, uh, the, the, the faith of Yeshua and keep his commandments. So God wants us to see that clearly that this is the last day issue. This is the contrast between the two. Ezekiel 20, verse 12, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me that they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. In the same chapter, verse 20, keep holy my Sabbath and they will be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord, your God. All right, so a mark, a seal, a sign. Right? You put a sign out, right? a sign, this is so-and-so's business. Right? Or you take a, a sticker sign and you stick it on that box, you know, it's Bob's box, whatever. You know, again, it's an identification. God's brand. God's brand, that's right, it's branding. That's right, it's branding. And so what does he say is the brand that you will know that he is, and that others will know that we have made him the Lord our God. Keeping the Sabbath, right? By this you will know, and that they might know that I am the Lord your God, that I am the one who sanctifies you by holy and faithfully, with a love and a joy and a delight in God's Sabbath, and not a grudgingly and burdensome way, but in a joyful, happy way while praying and interceding for others who are not experiencing that blessing and that joy, they will know that he is the Lord our God. So God claims from this text, Ezekiel, and all the others that we left, looked at, that God's Sabbath is God's sign, identification. So again, it's the one that has his name, his title, and his territory. And because it's the one that Satan attacks. It's the one that Satan hates. It's the one that goes back to the Garden of Eden. And he hates that covenant that God made with us. And he'd been trying to break that and break it in people. That's why God said to remember it. Because he knew there was going to be satanic attempts to get us to forget it, to replace it, to change it, to modify it. And so God said, remember it. And he etched it there in stone and into our hearts and into our minds that it is God's seal, that he sanctifies us, that he makes us holy that he sets us apart as his own, that he is the one that is the Lord our God. 
And so in these last days, the final conflict is going to be a collision of worship. True worship and false worship. Not again of worship and atheists or worship and agnostics. It's going to be a conflict in worship. Again, just like Cain and Abel. One offered the right sacrifice in the right place at the right time. The other one, Cain, came with a sacrifice for the Lord is God, but it wasn't the one that God asked for. It was his own ideas. It was his own giving, his own method, and God did not accept it. And that's what's going to be these last days. And that's the real conflict. So what is the basis of all true worship? Where should we go to get the answer to that question? The Bible, of course, that's right. So let's go to the Bible. Revelation. What the angels are saying, or the, 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 the creatures in heaven, are saying before God. Revelation 4, verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Worship. For you created all things, and by you, your will, they exist and were created. There's the word created twice there. Referring to him as creator. He is worthy because he is the creator. And then one chapter later in Revelation 5, verse 9, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and tongue. And that just means languages. In the Bible when it says tongues, it's talking languages. Tongue and people and nation. So here again. We have the commandments of God and the faith in Yeshua. That combination of both. And I put it in there, but Revelation 12, I think it is, verse 11, I think it says, uh, I think that's the number. It says, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring, with those who keep the commandments of God and who have the faith in Yeshua. Again, the two things placed there together. God's identification of his people keeping his commandments, and having faith in Yeshua. The everlasting gospel and God's commandments, including his seventh-day Sabbath. And in weeping and crying and praying and interceding on the behalf of those who are disobedient. So the right motives, the right heart, the right thoughts, and the right actions all coming together, all empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what makes God's identification. That's what makes up God's last day people. And so, in contrast to that, Revelation presents basically just two groups that will be in the last days. One group worships the Creator, as we've seen and identified now, the seventh-day Sabbath. And one group worships the beast. All the world will wander after the beast. All the world will wander after the beast. So it's an issue of worship. So come down to who we choose to worship in the last days. That's what it comes down to, as the final test of obedience. Just as there was a test there of the tree in the Garden of Eden, just as there was a test there with Noah's Ark, whether they get in the Ark or not get in the Ark. God has had his tests. In the sanctuary, where they come to the sanctuary, where they bring the right offering, God has had his test down through the ages. Except Yeshua as the Messiah, God has had his test down through the ages. And so the last day test will be on who we worship and how we worship. Worshiping the Lord, our God, the creator of all things, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of all, the Prince of Peace, or to worship the beast, which again will be a form of worship, a counterfeit, and counterfeits, to be a counterfeit, it's got to look very close to the real. It's not going to be just a denial of God. It's going to be very close to the real, a professed worship, a having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. So the final contrast, the final conflict comes down to the mark of the beast with a counterfeit law in the hand or in the forehead again in the actions or in the choices 
or the seal of God, the law of God, in our hand through the Holy Spirit being obedient and in the forehead choosing it and in the heart loving it. That's the basis of it. That's going to be the last comparison, the last conflict. And so the seal of God, obvious. The mark of the beast is just the counterfeit for it. Just the, the opposite of it. It's that simple. And again, with more information, we could identify by God's grace and have done at other times what the mark of the beast will be and who the beast power is and has been. Has been since John's day. John said it was in his day and is continuing to this day as well. The power of the system. We can be in God's word, be in God's will, under his protection, under his banner, filled with his grace, delighting in his ways, delighting in his commandments and walking in them and choosing them. He says in Psalm, the Psalm says, your law is my meditation all day long. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Delighting in his ways, delighting in obedience to him because the Holy Spirit is filling us and living it through us because Yeshua has cleansed us of all unrighteousness, has cleansed us of the carnal nature, has taken disobedience out of our heart and out of our will and broken that and crucified that and filled us with new hearts and new lives and given us the mind of Yeshua that walks us and compels us in harmony with him and obedience with him. And so as we pray here in a moment, now is the time to make the choice of which side we want to be on. Because when the real testing time comes, because the mark of the beast hasn't been installed yet, right? Disobedience, it's not until it becomes all those things where it's forced and it's coerced and a threatened to kill and a threatened to not buy and sell, that's when it becomes the final issue. Right now there's obedience and disobedience, but when it gets to that point, then it's the mark of the beast and the seal of God. But it's now we need to make that choice. Because when that time comes and the four winds of strife are being let loose, and literally all hell breaking loose upon this earth in a time of trouble such as the world has never seen before, and we're seeing little inklings of it now, we haven't seen anything yet, now won't be the time to be making a choice. Now is the time to make the choice. And we can say, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. And so a moment when we pray, if you want to be filled with God's Spirit, God, seal me now. I'm choosing now to walk in obedience to you. I'm choosing now your Sabbath. I'm choosing now to worship you as the Creator, to remember you as the Creator, and to honor your day of creation, your capstone of creation, that day of rest you blessed us with. And so in a moment, if you want to make that your prayer, you'll have opportunity to do that. Secondly, if God has convicted you that there's people you think about and you don't think about them with sighing and crying, you think about them with condemnation and, and putting down or anger and, and, and uh, bitterness, and you want God to give you his heart. Maybe people have hurt you, maybe really badly hurt you. You want Yeshua's mind and Yeshua's heart to pray for them. Lord, forgive them. Lord, have mercy on them. Lord, give them another opportunity to turn to you before the final judgment. Lord, lead them in the way of repentance. If you want to intercede in their behalf, or for humanity as a whole, or other individuals, or people that you see that are doing dastardly things in the world today, you don't want to just count them off and just condemn them, but to pray for them. In a moment when we pray, ask God to give you that kind of why, because it doesn't come naturally. We need to pray, Lord, take my carnal nature out of me. Through the blood of Yeshua, remove that from me. By looking down on others, the condemning of others, a holier-than-thou attitude. Take that away. Lord, give me your heart. Give me your mind. Give me your compassion to sigh and cry for those who are breaking your law. That tears may come out of my heart and out of my eyes in their behalf that type of love, to be willing to die in their place. As Moses, Lord, blot my name out for them. As Paul said, I wish I could be accursed for them. As Yeshua did, taking our sins upon himself, being our substitute in our behalf, having the mind of Yeshua. Lord, give me that, that, that mind. And so if that applies to you in a moment when we pray, you can ask for that.
and ask God to give you that. Third, if you have not been delighting in God's Sabbath, if you have not been walking in that, if you have not been keeping God's Sabbath holy, if you haven't been guarding Shomrei Shabbat, guarding God's Sabbath, and you want God to fill you with the power to do so, Maybe at one time you did, maybe you're still going through the ritual, but you're no longer enjoying it, no longer a delight. In a moment when we pray, we ask God to remove commandment breaking out of your heart and mind and to fill you with a joy for his love, for his law, and to fill it and live it in you and out of you. And so if that applies to you, in a moment when we pray, we can ask God to do that for us in our behalf. And maybe God's speaking to your heart and mind about some other sin. If we've broken one, we've broken them all. Maybe there's some area in your life where you know you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing, where you know there's something you should be doing that you're not doing. And God's bringing that to your mind and conviction's coming upon you through the power of the Holy Spirit. In a moment when we pray, you can confess that, you can receive God's forgiveness, you can receive his deliverance, and you can receive his Holy Spirit to give you the power to be able to walk rightly with him. And so if any of those things apply to you, let us pray together and let God do his mighty work. Or maybe you're enjoying God's Sabbath and rejoicing in it. And you want to thank him for it and just praise him for it. Maybe you've been interceding on behalf of others and you want to continue to thank God that he hasn't given up on them, that they're still alive and there's still opportunity for them. And you want to just praise him for that. And in a moment we can do that too and worship him and praise him as well. Our Lord and our God, ruler over everything on this earth and the universe, creator of all things, we thank you for your great love for us in giving us your Son as our Savior and our Deliverer. Thank you, Yeshua, for coming here, knowing our struggles and knowing our temptations and overcoming. Thank you for defeating Satan. Thank you for not bowing down or worshiping him. Lord, fill us with that same spirit. Fill us with that same mind. Fill us with your mind. Wash out of us everything that is not from you. And give us the ability to stand now and to stand in the future and stand eternally with you. Not yielding, not compromising. Put your seal, put your identification upon us and use us as living stones, as living light, pointing to you, the Lord our God creator of all things, savior of all. Thank you for living in us. Thank you for your spirit. Fill us with your spirit. Work in us and through us for your honor and for your glory. Give us love and compassion. Save those, Lord. Continue to pour out your spirit upon those who don't know you. Continue to pour out your spirit upon those who know you but aren't walking in obedience to you. Pour out your spirit upon them. Save them, Lord. And if there's any area in our life, continue to convict us and continue to change us, continue to transform us. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.